0: Filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started.
1: Hello and welcome
0: to another episode of the HR Room podcast.
1: Unfortunately, redundancies have been a regular feature of the Irish landscape and media coverage in recent years, and managing redundancies is something that many HR teams and organisations may have to face at some scale and at some point in their working lives. But when it comes to the law and the process surrounding redundancies, what are some of the key things we should look out for? What are the foundations of the law and the process? And how do we make sure we manage these processes effectively for all involved? So to hopefully answer these questions and many more, we're delighted to be joined by one of Ireland's leading employment lawyers and experts in this area, founder and principal at Crushel & Co, the wonderful Barry Crushel. Thanks for joining us, Barry. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me. Brilliant stuff. Looking forward to the chat. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, founder and managing director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary?
2: I'm great. Thanks, Owen. And brilliant to have you back again, Barry.
1: Thank you very much. It's great to be back. Brilliant stuff. Uh, so look, so let's jump right in. I suppose because a lot to get through, and it's, I know it's a popular one, and um, that we've got a lot of requests for. So let's kind of jump right in. So Barry, I might come to yourself first, um, but I suppose kind of a, an open enough question. Um, Generally, Barry, what's kind of the legal background to redundancies in Ireland? Are there kind of relevant laws, legislation that kind of govern this?
3: Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I think we should probably start by clarifying exactly what is a redundancy. And, and a redundancy occurs where an, an employee's position no longer exists. And that role is no longer replaced or potentially done differently. We'll get into the uh, the nitty gritty at a, at a later point. But generally, any employee over 16 with two years service Uh, whose role is made redundant, um, is entitled to a redundancy payment, and that's where something like the Redundancy Payments Act of 1967 comes into play. So that's probably one of the foundational uh, pieces of legislation governing this area. However, we also have a couple of other uh, key provisions which employers and employees need to consider. One is the protection of Employment Acts. That involves collective redundancies, and I'm happy to speak Um, on that later if we get an opportunity. However, in in my experience, the majority of claims that I see in respect of redundancies don't come under either of those two uh, key provisions, the Redundancy Payments Act or the Protection of Employment Act. In fact, the majority of claims that I see in respect of redundancies actually come under the Unfair Dismissals Act, whereby uh, an employee is contesting whether a redundancy actually occurred at all whether they were fairly selected for that redundancy, whether proper processes and procedures were carried out, whether there were suitable alternatives to redundancy proposed, or whether they were given a right of appeal, um, and so realistically, with the that uh, the, the al- although the redundancy payments act covers payments in respect of redundancy, which relates to I believe it's um, a ceiling of uh, six hundred euro. Uh, Per week plus one week's pay per year of service. um, In general, a lot of uh, employees are bringing claims against their former employers, contesting um, either whether a a genuine redundancy um, has occurred, um, whether they've been fairly selected, or on some other procedural ground. So, ultimately, in my experience, the Unfair Dismissals Act is probably one of the key pieces of legislation um, and the case law surrounding considerations of what constitutes a proper redundancy. Um, and process is, 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 is
1: extremely important. Presenting something we can touch on as we I suppose, develop through the conversation a little, but it's a good point that it's not necessarily just the obvious piece of legislation, it's the unfair dismissal as well, which is very, very pertinent. Um, I suppose, Mary, then, obviously we're talking about the law and the process today, so I'll open with a, with a question on the process for yourself, Mary. I suppose, is there kind of a set process to managing redundancies? I know some of us might know the answer, but I suppose you might give us a, a bit of an insight into the set process, the best practice, that kind of stuff.
2: I think it is a really good question, Owen, because again, uh, like Barry, you know, an awful lot of focus comes on um, how the procedures applied and, and how you actually approached the whole process. But there are fundamental differences between uh, a collective redundancy process and, uh, um, I suppose, an, an individual or single or, you know, small number of um, redundancies within any organisation, and in my experience, when it comes to the collective, you know, it, it's prescribed. You know, you have to notify the minister. Um, you have to engage in a 30-day consultation period. There are certain expectations about how things are done, and where usually the the grayer area comes in is is when there's a single redundancy and somebody is looking at that and saying hey that's not fair why was i selected um there no redundancy exists and you often see that word barry i'm sure you see it sham redundancy all the time that that comes up as a a, a point which is made um frequently But I guess always the beauty in having um, somebody who specializes uh, and has knowledge around defense. My knowledge is around the practicality of doing it um, in terms of, you know, looking people in the eye and and working through consultation processes with my clients um, and, you know, supporting them as they go through that process and it's a different perspective um always uh, because the idea being you're you know looking at well what's the business case is there a genuine reason to make somebody redundant in the first place that's the first thing we would look at and um, the next thing we would look at is well how are we going to communicate this decision to uh, either the employees at large, if it's collective, or maybe smaller group of of employees, uh, if it's not collective. Um, And then it comes back to very much how that consultation piece goes. What alternatives have you looked at? What alternatives are you considering? Um, What you're considering? from the suggestions made by the employees and then of course how you go about you know informing people that their uh, role has become redundant and whether or not they qualify for a redundancy payment so it, it's a different slant i guess um one of the most emotive processes that you are going to have as an organization and you know it, it can fundamentally rock Uh, an organisation, it can damage a culture. You only need to look at Twitter to see how, um, you know, a global decision around a reduction of a workforce um, had on the culture, uh, on the people in that organisation, and maybe on their uh, future ability to attract people into the organisation. So to me, it's a very serious process, and and any organisation... Uh, who's considering it, you know, particularly when it comes to the singular redundancy. Sometimes people think it's it's a way out of a problem or a performance issue. And there's people like Barry out there who spot it a mile away um, and who who's going to go into cor- into the WRC or, or some other fora and successfully win that case.
1: Definitely. It's a deep process and something we'll actually speak about quite regularly over the next couple of weeks on our various kind of um, platforms as well. But it's a, it's a great point made to, to showcase that it is, the bookend ended there, I suppose, to say that it is, a, it, it, it is a tough process and there's a lot to it. Um, I suppose, Barry, then, again, from your perspective, is there any kind of recent case law, recent learnings from your experience even that would kind of highlight some of the usual challenges that people can, I suppose, face during a redundancy process? You have a lot of experience in this area, so any kind of notable things from your side?
3: Yeah. Um, so one of the first things I always do is go back to the to the legislation. So if we were looking at the Unfair Dismissals Act, there's a couple of key justifications for redundancy. That's probably our starting point. And that is, is that you know, has the employer ceases or intends to cease either the business or a proportion of it, um, that they are going to carry out the business with um, fewer employees, that the requirements of the business have changed, or that they are going to do work in a different manner for which the employee or employees Concerned may not be suitably qualified, so that's probably our starting position before we even get into the legislation. There was one case that I um, that I took note of um, as the COVID nineteen pandemic emerged, and the COVID nineteen pandemic was very useful for people um, studying redundancies in general because we had a situation whereby many businesses. Found themselves in dire uh, financial straits, uh, constraints. They found themselves in very difficult situations. Uh, their commercial, um, their, their their commercials operations were extremely challenged, and, and therefore they had to lay people off or let people go. And so, what tends to happen is that employers can very often, in their own mind, justify why they are laying people off or letting people go. But my advice is not what you believe, but what you can later prove if you have to justify the decision to terminate somebody's employment on foot of redundancy before the Workplace Relations Commission. I always advise my clients on the basis that I may be sitting before an adjudication officer and having to talk through the various stages of a redundancy process. And so to my mind, it's very important for employers to document the process as comprehensively as possible so that at a future date, even based on the material alone, an adjudication officer could see the various stages, the processes, the procedures being followed through from beginning to end, and while they may have questions, fully understand exactly what has occurred and why it has occurred and how redundancy was one of the only options available to this employer. And there was a case you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned, did, did was there any that st- stood out? Uh, there was one, it was Tracy Ring v Student Facility Services in UCC. And my understanding to the background of this case was that this individual was working in the facilities office offices of, um, of UCC and effectively the campus had shut down and there was a question as to whether there would be employment for this person thereafter. And like many employers, um, they believe that the extenuating circumstances of COVID-19 would be uh, a de facto defense to any claim that the redundancy was unfair. But I took a a section out of the adjudication officer's uh, decision, which I've used in virtually every redundancy case that I have brought or defended since. And it goes, quote, an employer does not have a free hand to act as it pleases. An employer is bound to act within the requirements of the law, irrespective of the circumstances the employer is navigating. It is not in dispute that there was a global pandemic. However, there is a well-trodden path in respect of dismissing an employee lawfully by reason of redundancy. Specifically, it requires the employee Uh, the the employee to be put on formal notice that their role is at risk of redundancy. Um, It requires a genuine consultation process to be entered into. Um, Often an employer will implement a selection matrix to determine which roles in the organization are to be made redundant in a bid as far uh, as possible to ensure that the redundancy is impersonal, end quote. And for me, this was a very useful summary of what is required. The process is to be impersonal, regardless of the commercial considerations, you need to go through that process, even if redundancy is at the end of the day the only feasible outcome. And from personal experience, I'm going to I don't often speak about any cases that we lost. Um, the majority of the claims that we would bring, particularly on behalf of employees, would be settled prior to any adjudication, but there were there were two circumstances that I can think of very recently where um, employers came to us after they have carried out a redundancy process and then the employee subsequently challenged that process under the Unfair Dismissals Act. In one case, the employer had text messaged a particular employee to let them know that their role would no longer exist and offered them effectively an ex gratia payment. And then when that ex gratia payment was turned down, they said, well, now we have to go through this redundancy process. But the adjudication officer said, well, it was a foregone conclusion. You'd already made a decision at the very beginning, as evidenced by this text message, that you wanted this person gone. So therefore, the whole process, as Mary um, mentioned, was a sham. We certainly didn't use that word in the, uh, in the hearing. But another one was on behalf of a British client of ours, uh, and again came to us at the end of the, the, the process when an employee had challenged their dismissal the company was divided into different segments, Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland. And during the COVID pandemic, there was no work available for the single Irish employee. And it seemed to them like a foregone conclusion that because this individual was an Irish employee operating in the Irish market under Irish employment law, that that employee should be segregated from considerations in other jurisdictions. But the adjudication officer said no that employee said, well, I would have been willing to consider working in Northern Ireland, in Scotland, in England, and in Wales. And the fact that that hadn't been brought up or taken into consideration was very detrimental to my client's case. Because one of the problems that employers have when they're going through a redundancy process is you cannot assume anything. You cannot take anything for granted, which is why the consultation process is of paramount importance to explore all of the other options, consider them, and even if they're not feasible, be in a position to defend at a future date why a particular path was not chosen and redundancy was the only
1: option. i present, and it's actually a, a point we'll touch on later on in the discussion about alternative options, which is, is fantastic. So it's a, it's a perfect segue. Before we jump on to that, Mary, I might just ask you, I suppose Barry has raised a couple of key learnings there um, a couple based on kind of singular redundancies, but obviously we've we know a lot about collective redundancies as well. From your perspective, Mary, is there any kind of key differentiations, commonalities between the collective and the individual that people should be aware of? I know you touched on it um, previously, but is there anything that kind of stands out to you that people should know? Look, this is important. Here's the differentiator, but here's a commonality.
2: I think we can't forget that you're dealing with human beings, and and I take the point uh, that Barry makes that this is impersonal. Uh, The decision from the company is impersonal. But from the employee perspective, we cannot forget this affects their ability to live, to pay their mortgages, to um, feed their families, to um, pay their loans. And so we cannot forget that you must take a humane approach to this um, and it's probably one of the the big things that i would say um, is missing often when it comes to those singular redundancies um, you know that fait accompli that we deal with our problem um, maybe a performance issue maybe a, a difficult employee maybe an employee who's um you know troublesome in some way in the organisation. And, you know, I think it, it, it's really important that you don't forget are slightly different, but the fundamentals still apply. Um, I would say the biggest difference really is in the length of the consultation period, not in what's discussed during that consultation period, because, you know, I I would be of the view that no matter who's been made redundant, they need to be notified respectfully. Um, That, you know, you don't, you certainly don't do something like that by text message. That's, that's, you know, from uh, the individual's perspective. I think you always have to put yourself in the individual's shoes and imagine yourself if somebody... Text you to tell you that your livelihood um, was coming to an end, how would you feel? Um, and you know how helpless and angry and all of those things. So from a, a humane perspective, treating people with respect right at the outset, uh, informing them. Uh, ideally face-to-face, but virtually, of course, in in these uh, post-pandemic times, that that is the norm. But, you know, look at people, face them. Make sure that um, they're notified and make sure that they're clear about what the process is actually going to entail and how long it's going to be. So typically, um, in a collective redundancy situation, you've got that 30-day consultation period, I would say two weeks is, um, you know, generally what I see out there in terms of uh, a length of consultation period in in a non-collective redundancy process. Um, But the more time you give people, the better. You know, you don't have to stick to two weeks. You could take 30 days if you wished. You could take longer if you wished. It all depends on the circumstances surrounding the reasons for that redundancy. Why uh, are you making... roles redundant and although it's an impersonal decision let us not treat the individual um in impersonally and um, it's important that you treat people with respect
1: 100 i think it's such a it's such a key part to it um as we'll jumping back then barry to what you mentioned about the alternative options um and i know we've all seen headlines you mentioned one case there i know we've seen headlines recently about things think there's relocation all these different kind of things when it comes to to redundancies and options can you talk to us just a little bit about that alternative options piece what are they are organizations legally obliged to explore them all that kind of stuff
3: yeah no it's, it's, it's a really good point so in a situation whereby there is a, a consultation process ordinarily um, employees may be um, invited to consider alternative roles within the organization um, and that brings with it a, a sort of a plethora of both positives and negatives. And the positives are that if an individual finds what's called suitable alternative employment, and they accept that role, then in in, in the eyes of the law, a redundancy scenario uh, doesn't exist. This comes up for me a lot in, in my consultations with both employers and employees. And the example I would always give is if I'm working for a law firm as uh, as a solicitor, and I'm mainly carrying out employment law work, but I do a lot of immigration work. If my employer says, we've no longer got enough employment law work to sustain you, and your role would therefore be made redundant, but we can offer you uh, uh, work as an immigration lawyer on comparable terms and conditions, everything else will, for all intents and purposes, stay the same. Then if I accept that role um a redundancy is deemed not to have occurred because I I remain in employment with my employer. However, if I was offered an alternative role, which I considered for whatever reason to be a diminution in my terms and conditions of service, there can often be a conflict between the employer and the employee as to whether that uh, alternative role is in fact suitable. Um, Because the employer may say, well, your hours remain the same your work remains the same, your pay remains the same, but there might be some subjective factors that the employee considers very relevant. And there is a a very famous case where the issue of suitable alternative employment comes for consideration, and it's Cambridge and District Cooperative Society. It's an English case. Um, And in, in that case, if I may read from my own notes, the Employment Appeals Tribunal noted that the suitability, quote the suitability of the employment is an objective matter whereas the reasonableness of the employee's refusal depends on the factors personal to him, end quote. And there was a case that I I, I took out um, several years ago. It involved a a barman who was working in Liffey Valley. And that premises were, those premises were closing. And this individual was then offered work in a sister uh, premises in Dublin 1. And the employee... Refused that work, uh, saying that the travel arrangements were too onerous on on, on, on him. Um, and one, I believe, at the Workplace Relations Commission, the employer appealed it to the Labour Court, and the Labour Court said that when making such a determination as to the suitability of alternative employment under a redu- or under a re- redundancy scenario, you know, an an, an employer is uh, required to consider whether the refusal of the alternative employment. Um, um, is 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 reasonable and the personal circumstances of the employee. And it went on to say that although the work was of a comparable nature, the time, the cost and energy required to attend the Dublin One premises where the new role was located was considerable um, with due regard to the fact that the previous role um, had been accepted on the basis of the complainants uh, living very in very close proximity to the um, to the workplace, and, and again, there was another case that I recall where a cleaner was moved from Dublin Airport to Hote, which doesn't seem like a huge distance, but she subsequently argued that instead of one bus, she would be required to take two buses, which would have a knock-on effect for her family circumstances. So generally speaking, you, you need to look and say, well, is there a diminution in terms of conditions of service? And if not, after that, you know, are there any other causes which may... Uh, justify an employee's refusal um, of that role and if they refuse it an employer has a dilemma they can either contend at that point that well look we haven't made you redundant and in some cases they may have a very hard approach to it and say well we're considering this to be a a resignation because you're not being made redundant or um, like most employers will, 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 will you know take guidance on it um, and, and potentially avoid a legal standoff and simply pay the employee uh, their redundancy.
1: Definitely, yeah, and there can be a lot of different different outcomes to it. And I suppose on to my next question then, Barry, and it's one that we, I know you've kind of alluded to already, but it's it's one that we always ask, I suppose, when these processes and the legislation, all these things aren't followed correctly, Barry, I suppose what can go wrong for companies? I suppose the most obvious one is you're leaving yourself wide open to unfair dismissal claims and that kind of stuff. But I suppose from your perspective, what can go wrong if these things aren't done right?
3: Yeah. Um, There are three things I always consider in relation to employment disputes for both employers and employees. And that's the legal risk, the commercial risk, and the reputational risk. So it's very easy for me as an employment lawyer just to speak about you know, what legal risk the employer may face if a successful claim of, for example, unfair dismissal by way of false redundancy is brought against them. And generally speaking, what are you looking at? You're looking at compensation from the time uh, an employee ended um, until uh, employee took up new employment. Generally speaking, if they've taken steps to mitigate their losses. So you're looking at a, a loss of income that's repayable back to the dismissed employee. But very often there can be more, there can be greater commercial challenges because employers, and and this feeds in then to the reputational risk as well. We're now in an era of social media um, and companies are more concerned about their reputation in respect of both clients, but also future colleagues. Um, So if a redundancy process is carried out in a very inhumane way, people will start to question, is that an organization I really want to work for? And Mary touched on the point very early on in relation to TikTok. I obviously don't represent uh, Elon Musk, um, but in in a situation like that, they took a very American uh, black and white approach to a redundancy process across all of their jurisdictions, which didn't gel well with an Irish audience. And so, in that situation, what I would say is, is that there's not only the legal risk of potential claims being brought uh, against um, an employer subsequently for potentially loss of earnings or in exceptional cases, if we take the TikTok, uh, sorry, if we take the Twitter case as well, sorry, um, you, you, you did have an injunction proceeding brought against, uh, against Twitter to force them not to terminate the employment of a very senior executive. Um, given the potential absence of due process and fair procedure. But possibly of of a greater significance was the commercial and reputational costs that followed. And so in a situation like that, very often these days, a lot of employers will offset any of those risks by going through the process and notwithstanding any risk, still continue to offer uh, their employees maybe a severance package um, and a settlement agreement but ultimately, that's going to depend on, I, again, I always say there's four things. What are the potential claims that can be brought? What's the likely compensation? You know, what are the chances of a successful outcome and what are the costs involved? And if an employer was to analyze the problem that they face through those four considerations, um, then they, they may make a commercial decision um, as to whether resolving the issue sooner rather than later is in their best interest.
1: And I suppose similar question to yourself, Mary. I suppose if you're not staying true to that fair and 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 open procedure and process, as Barry says, these things can go wrong quite easily, Mary, can't they? And you can end up with some of the some of the, the damages that Barry has mentioned there in the headlines, all that kind of stuff. Anything from your perspective, Mary?
2: Absolutely. I, I always, when, when we're guiding and advising and assisting our clients on on these matters, or maybe actually involved um, as one of the management representatives in the collective consultation, we will always be thinking about um, those three considerations. You know, do we have a a business case to do this? Um, you know, how can we approach it in the fairest way possible? And um, you know, at the end of the process, for the, for those people who are leaving the organisation, are they going to feel like they have just been absolutely uh, treated badly and inhumanely by the organisation? You won't have people happy. I can promise you that, no matter what way you approach the redundancy consultation notification and ultimately the, the uh, dismissal of a person from their role. They are not going to be happy about it. Uh, very rarely are they going to be happy about it. But they can be extremely angry about it if you treat them badly. Um, and I just think it's so important that that piece is not forgotten because it does nobody any good to go to the WRC. That's the last thing any employer wants. And nowadays, because it's not anonymous, um, your name is published uh, on, on the WRC website and shared, shared by people like Barry, shared by people like me and, and you own, uh, shared by multiple uh, employment lawyers and people in, in this particular space all across social media. It is the very last thing you want. No company wants to um, be the subject of our discussions here. I can tell you that, Um, you know, and once something is published, we know the name of the company, we know the name of the individuals. I think it's really, really important that this is considered decision-making, Process When it comes to selection, and, and this is probably a, a big area uh, of challenge always, you know, but least likely to have you in front of an adjudicator is the last in first out because generally everybody accepts. I started after somebody else Um, therefore in this particular process, I'm going, yeah, I'm not happy. I don't like it, but it's hard to um you know, find a, find a hole in that because it's deemed to be fair. When it comes to selection matrices, then it, these can be challenged more easily. So a lot of time needs to be spent on the criteria and making sure that they're objective, that you can back it up with documentation, that this is a fair process, as fair as possible. Um and that you know if you have to provide it at a later stage uh, at a wrc hearing that it actually supports that a there was a genuine redundancy it's documented Um, b that it was the fairest approach that you could find in the circumstances um, and and see that you actually discuss this with the employees affected or their representatives um, with a view to Avoiding redundancies, looking at alternatives, seeing if there's any other way you could approach this, and approaching that in a very genuine way, um with the view that look, if ultimately, for whatever reason whether you're closing a premises, whether you're dealing with the pandemic or or probably where the majority of my experience uh, came in, Barry would have been in in the 2008 to 2012, when Ireland was in a deep recession. Um, And, you know, in real terms, um, whatever the justification, it's important that you don't forget the procedure. You may be in dire straits, and I am always sympathetic to my clients when they are in dire straits financially. Um, You know, always sympathetic, but that doesn't justify dropping process and procedure you still are obliged by law to um, carry out uh, redundancy processes collective and non-collective in a fair and transparent way.
1: Definitely yeah, I suppose it's kind of perfect segue to my to our closing question and I'll come to both to be able to come to yourself first Barry, if that's okay I suppose we have a lot of listeners probably thinking now look I don't want to end up in the in the headlines I don't want to get this wrong I don't want to, to have I suppose negative damage on my on my company here. if i get this wrong they want to know what to do and how to do it so i suppose any kind of parting advice barry in a in a a couple of lines i know it's it's probably a tough question to always finish with but any kind of parting advice for our listeners who might be a little bit worried about what they what they should do here
3: i think the best thing they could do is possibly contact myself or mary but failing that uh failing that yeah i just think you need to plan and document i need to i think you need to really break down each stage And generally, in my experience, the more documentation you have that clearly explains what has occurred, why it has occurred, when it has occurred, and who it has occurred with, that will greatly assist me at a later date if we come to an adjudication hearing. And I can provide an adjudication officer with a significant amount of correspondence from the employer to the employee that explains the background, why they were put at risk, inviting them to a meeting follow-up letters from that meeting, a decision that's very rational, setting out all of the other considerations and potentially inviting the employee to a right of appeal. Because if I can provide that in a submission in advance of an adjudication hearing, I know that I have one foot forward before I walk in the door because I don't need to walk in there explaining gaps.
1: 100%. 100%. And I suppose similar question to yourself then, Mary, as we say a lot on this podcast, a kind of a good start to have to work, but it's probably something that's relevant to this as well, as Barry says there.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you, Barry. I, as I say, and it, it's interesting, I suppose, the, the different angles that uh, practitioners doing the same thing or involved in the same process uh, come from things. Uh, at, I I would always say to my clients about the documentation piece, you know, the documentation is key. Exactly what Barry says, you know, producing all of this paperwork and paper trail is key. So that when an employee who may be disgruntled and angered by the process or the fact that they have lost the, their, their position uh, and now potentially unemployed and seeking employment. Um, when those people walk in the door of, a, of an employment lawyer's office and they produce the documentation that the company um, provided to them, then that employment lawyer is going to look at it and say, I don't believe you have a case because that employment lawyer will be looking for gaps. And if there are none, uh, will be advising that employee of that. And so it works twofold from a a company's perspective. You know, you come at a redundancy process, whatever it is, from a human perspective, first and foremost, That's, that's my view. If you approach it from a human perspective, you're unlikely to make big mistakes because you always have front and center that these employees um, have worked for the company for however long uh, and ought to be treated with respect. And that will inform every decision you make thereafter. If you have to do something, you have to do something. Um, And if it's unpleasant, it's unpleasant. You know, management have that responsibility. Um, But what you don't want is someone walking out the door with nothing and Barry says, okay, let's go yeah and you, you, we can we can make a case here mm-hmm. um i believe you can win this because they they didn't follow any fair procedure here um and so my view is the paper trail will protect and um, it shouldn't be dispensed with The what you document is the tricky bit, isn't it? From from a HR practitioner perspective or from a management perspective, I would always say, you know, if you're, if you're not experienced in this, it, you know, picking up the phone, speaking to Barry for an hour. Uh, Having a meeting with him or or me, you know, or, or other experienced practitioners can save you a hell of a lot of time and money and bother later and your reputation. You do not want to be going into the WRC. And, you know, you might be able to settle something with someone before going to the WRC. But I have certainly met in my time people who are angry enough that aren't interested in the money. It's not the money. It's, it's the fact that they were so badly treated and they're prepared to go the absolute distance um, by going to the WRC. And then that is out of your control um, in terms of your name, your brand, uh, your, your management um, being identifiable through the WRC. Um, so you have to be very, very careful.
1: Definitely, and it's fantastic to get two perspectives on this, but a lot of things being echoed here. There's a lot of commonalities and some very clear, important things um, coming out of this discussion, so I'm sure a lot of people enjoyed it. So thank you, Mary and Barry, for a very insightful discussion, as always. Uh, no surprise there. I knew we'd have a, a great chat on this with two two big experts in this area. Uh, thank you to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week for the next installment of our podcast, where we'll be talking about redundancies again, more so the communication and the support side of things. So don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media social media channels, sorry and keep an eye out for that episode next week. If you are enjoying these episodes, do feel free to share them with colleagues, friends and family, and even better, if you can leave us a review on whatever platform you're on, we'd really appreciate it. Give us a couple of stars there if you think we're we're having some good chats with, with our great guests. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at insidehr.ie. Thank you, Mary, and thank you, Barry. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room Podcast the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like, and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember... If you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.